Before we get started today, just wanted to make one more um, plea, if you will, for our Alpha class, which starts tonight. And so if you, there is still plenty of room or space available in the class. So if that's something you were thinking about, but were kind of on the fence about, uh, please know that you are more than welcome uh, to attend. You can talk to Sally up here or Christy in the back. E both of them can give you all the information uh, you need. And, and what I'd like to do right now is I just want us to pray for that class. So Lord God, I, I just I thank you for, for Sally and Christy uh, for their willingness to facilitate this class. Lord, I pray for all those who have committed to attend, and I pray for anybody that uh, is supposed to be there, but either has not made that decision or hasn't been invited yet. And so, Lord, just quicken the hearts and minds of people to either take that step or to make that invitation. Bless this class, Lord. I pray that uh, those that will be there will get everything out of it that you want. And we give you thanks and ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a bishop and author named William Willimon, and he told a story uh, about an encounter he had at one point with a dying woman. She was in the very last stages of lung cancer, and so um, she basically spent her days gasping for breath, just trying to breathe. And it was very obvious that she was in a lot of pain, she was exhausted, uh, because she'd been fighting so hard for so long. And she clutched a crucifix, and it was given to her by her grandmother when she had been a girl, and it had been carved by a monk somewhere in Europe. And it was a symbol to her of everything that her Catholic faith meant to her. And so when Bishop Willimon entered her room uh, that particular afternoon, it was very obvious to him that she was very close to death. She was very near the end. And he asked her, he says, would you like me to pray for you? Would you like me to summon a priest? And he says that with her last ounce of energy, she held out the crucifix toward him, which depicted the body of Jesus nailed to the cross, and she said, thank you, but I have a priest. And though the woman was absolutely right, she could have taken that description of Jesus even further. And as we're going to see in a moment in this reading that we'll do from Hebrews today, Jesus was more than simply a priest. He was our high priest, and he was the greatest of all high priests. So let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for this word, from, um, this word that you have given us, and I pray that we receive everything that, we, uh, that you would want us to as we hear it and as we discuss it. So, Father, be the embodiment of this message. We give you thanks and ask it now in Jesus' name. So we're going to look at two separate but related passages from Hebrews today. And the first one is from chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. And we'll have that up here on the screen. But Hebrews 4, chapter 4, verses 4 through 16 starts out, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then the second passage is from uh, Hebrews chapter 5. So jump ahead to chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of his people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, if we look at that, it sort of begs a question. Who or what exactly is a high priest? Is a high priest someone, uh, a priest who's gotten into the communion wine a little too heavily? <laughs> Who've been back in the sanctuary? I saw this in a movie once. I don't really know what this means, but people seem to get high when they did that. Um, well, if you were a Jewish reader of this letter, you, you would have understood perfectly all of the references that are in here to a high priest. Um, but most of us are not Jewish, and we're not intimately familiar, at least, with some of the Old Testament Jewish customs and practices. So this seems a bit mysterious to us. So I want to spend just a moment before we actually get into the text talking about the significance of the high priest. Now, the high priest is the chief religious officer or official for Israel and for Judaism as a whole. And it's a hereditary office, so it's based all on descent from Aaron, who was Moses' brother. Okay, Aaron was the first high priest. And so you had to be a descendant of Aaron and also part of the tribe of Levi. Okay, so that was sort of the, the way it would work. Now, normally, when you were a high priest, you served for life. It's kind of like a Supreme Court judge. You got appointed to that role, and you were there uh, for your entire life. Although, if you read uh, in some parts of Scripture, as early as Solomon's reign, uh, there was some replacement of the high priest for some political reasons. So they didn't stick to that. You, you're a high priest for life always. But the thing was, there was this special degree of holiness that was required for you to be a high priest. You had to avoid defilement in every respect. So you had to avoid contact with the dead, um, even in the case of his own parents. And he's forbidden, he was forbidden to show any outward signs of mourning, which I think is kind of odd. Uh, he could not leave the sanctuary precincts or that area. Uh, 
And so this legislation all identified the high priest as someone who was totally dedicated to God, who was always pure and always ready to serve God. Okay? So if the high priest were to sin, according to the law, he brought sin onto the entirety of the nation. And that's how significant he was. And so the sin offering for the high priest was identical to that required if the whole congregation of Israel were, were to have sinned. Same thing. And so the high priest, in, in general, sort of just shared in the priestly duties, with one significant exception. It was only the high priest who was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, that very inner, inner chamber. Remember, there's the, um, the outer court, the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies was where the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant was. And only on the Day of Atonement, which we commonly refer to now as Yom Kippur, that was the only day that the high priest was allowed to go in um, to the, uh, into the Holy of Holies. And on that particular day, he was to perform this elaborate ritual, which was to atone for all of the sins of the people. And we're not going to go into all of that now. There's plenty in scripture that describes all of this if you're if you're interested so if we take what we just heard in scripture and and marry that up with this description that we just had i think you can only come to the conclusion that with all those things combined that jesus truly was a great high priest so what i want to do now is look a little bit more closely from what we read today and find out what it is about Jesus that really made him the greatest high priest of all time. And I think, first of all, Jesus is a great high priest because he gets what you're dealing with. I think it's interesting that this verse is phrased as a negative. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And I, from what I read, I think that's more than likely because there were some people that were, were, were objecting a little bit to this. Uh, they were thinking, well, maybe Jesus is just really too remote, too far removed from human need to really understand what I'm going through. But the thing is, not only is Jesus not remote, he is so close to us that he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. The verb sympathize, as it's used here, if it's translated from the Greek, means literally to suffer along with. So it's a very active kind of sympathy. It's not just, oh, I feel bad. It's like Jesus can actually feel what you're feeling. And because Jesus, our high priest, was made like us, he experienced life completely. He grew tired. He was hungry. He faced all the normal limitations that human beings have, that you and I face. So in other words, he gets what you're dealing with. So are you going through something right now that you don't think anybody else could possibly understand? Maybe work is asking more from you than you think you can give. Jesus gets that. His work asked an awful lot from him. 
Maybe you work with a bunch of people who can't seem to learn what they're supposed to do. Jesus gets that. He had a bunch of people with him that had a real hard time trying to figure out what in the world he was trying to tell them. It doesn't really matter what it is that you're dealing with. And that's why I thought what Harry said today was so good that it married up with this scripture because that is when we truly get to know Jesus. Is not when we're on the mountaintop. I mean, that's a great place to be. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to spend a lot of all my time there. But see, that's not realistic. Because as we journey on life, you may walk and get to the top of the mountain, but there are these things called valleys on the other side. Anyone else familiar with the valley? Yeah? Thought so. Jesus gets all of that. He understands that there are valleys in life. And so he is someone that we can turn to when we're dealing with what is in those valleys. The second thing is somewhat related to the, the, the first, and that is that Jesus is a great high priest because his experience matches yours. It says, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Now, does this mean that Jesus, you know, has dealt with internet porn? No, I don't think so. What it's saying, though, is that Jesus has met each specific type of temptation that we're going to face. So he's dealt with all of those things, not necessarily in their specific occurrence in your life or my life, but in all of the ways that we can be tempted. In other words, he has sampled the entire range of options for sinning. Oh, I should say he's not sampled them, he's been exposed to, is maybe a better way to say that. And in all, it all fell on him. And because that Jesus never actually yielded to sin, I don't think it's out of the question to guess that maybe he, faced, he faced more intense temptation than most of us did. Right? Most of us say yes to sin before Satan's thrown all of his weapons at us. Yeah, that looks good. Okay. Not a whole lot of yielding there. Right? Jesus said no, even as Satan hurled every arrow in his quiver at him. He resisted until he broke the power of Satan. And as I said, although he was a human being, he was unlike us in that he was totally without sin. And from our limited perspective, it's really, really difficult, I think, to understand this, this great mystery. It's like, really? You know, he's walking somewhere and somebody's donkey cuts him off and he doesn't get upset about it. <laughs> that probably didn't happen. That's not biblical, but you, you understand the point. What we can say, though, is that Jesus could have sinned because he was human 
which makes the temptation that he faced real. But we know that he didn't sin, which means that he never yielded to that temptation. And it's another reason that Jesus can and is our great high priest. We can find comfort in knowing that because he faced every form of temptation or type of temptation that we did, he understands how difficult it can be to say no. And so when you find yourself in a situation that, you know, where you're getting close to stepping over the line, there's someone, even if you can't talk to anybody else, you can talk to Jesus about it. You can ask him to help. Say, I can't seem to beat this. I can't seem to not do this thing. Will you please help me not to do it? The third thing, the third reason, I guess, that Jesus was a great high priest was because he wasn't appointed by men, but by God. Now, as I said, the first criterion that any high priest has got to meet is that he has to be of priestly descent. So, in other words, a direct descendant following the male line of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Um, however, it was true that within Judaism they would always select the most qualified individual even if they didn't follow that criteria. Um, the Torah describes the high priest as one who is the greatest from among his brethren. And the way they defined that great greatness was like this. It's been interpreted primarily as greatness in piety or awe of God and in wisdom. Those were the two distinguishing characteristics of the high priest, a reverence or an awe of God and wisdom. And the Old Testament priests, they, they didn't take this honor upon themselves. You know, there, there wasn't like a poll that said, okay, who wants to be high priest this year? Oh, well, I'll give it a shot. It's not how it worked at all. They were honored because they were selected. And so in the same way that Jesus didn't take this honor upon himself or this glory of becoming high priest. In fact, he said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, he of whom you say he is our God. That's from John's Gospel. The difference in this case is that Jesus was directly appointed by God as demonstration from the quotation that's part of this verse, which is actually from Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have become your father. Christ became the high priest because he perfectly fulfilled the requirements. And he fulfilled them even more perfectly than the high priest in that he did not have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Remember, the high priest had to do that. And instead, he offered himself as the perfect sacrificial lamb once and for all for the forgiveness of every last sin of every last person. All right, that, we need to emphasize that a little bit.
every last sin, that means there is no sin that you have committed that has not been forgiven. Do we understand that? Every last person. That means there's nobody here who has not been totally and completely forgiven of the sins that you have committed. Every last sin, every last person. You can't... I've heard people say this. Well, but what I've done is so terrible that I don't think there's any way God could forgive me. Uh-uh. No. That's, that's absolutely false. That's not scriptural. Every last sin, every last person. And finally, I think Jesus is a great high priest because he's also a king. And this is where this interesting person named Melchizedek comes into play. Now, Melchizedek is mentioned only two places in the entire Old Testament, uh, and then in addition to this, this time in the New Testament. But he's mentioned in Genesis 14, chapter 14, verses 17 through 24, and then one verse, verse 4, in Psalm 110. That's it. We don't know a whole lot about Melchizedek. So why is he important to the story? Well, he's important because Jesus did not have the one significant requirement for becoming a high priest. He was not born into the tribe of Levi, and he had not descended from Aaron. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And only Levites could be priests, and only descendants of Aaron could be high priests in the Jewish system. But the book of Hebrews is specific in saying how Jesus' priesthood was greater than the priesthood of Aaron. And it quotes Psalm 110 in order to prove this. He says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now these words are from King David. And it predicted that the Messiah would come from a line of priests that were not traced back to Aaron. And what's a, what is noteworthy about all of the descendants of Aaron was that they were priests, but they were not kings. They were just priests. But the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It's in his name. And do you know what his kingdom was, if you, if you know Genesis? His kingdom was called Salem. And Salem was a variation of the word shalom, which means peace. He was a king of righteousness, and his kingdom was peace. Does that sound like anybody else that you might have run into in Scripture? So the important thing about Melchizedek is that he was both a priest and a king. And so Melchizedek becomes this picture of our Lord Jesus, who was a priest forever. But not just a priest, a priest who is also a king with a kingdom. So in closing today, I was thinking, well, how does, how does one describe this great high priest, Jesus? You know, yes, he is our high priest. Yes, he is a king, but he is so much more. 
And I think trying to describe the wonder, the magnificence, the glory of Jesus may be perhaps one of the most difficult things a preacher has to do. How do you convey that? How do you help somebody understand just how magnificent Jesus is? Well, after hearing what you are about to hear, I decided to stop trying. Because there is no one that I am aware of who has ever done a better job of describing Jesus than Dr. S.M. Lockridge. And it is in his words, spoken by his voice, that I will leave you with today. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light.
That's my king. Is he your king? If he's not your king, he can be. He can be right now. And if that's something that you've never done, if that's a decision that you've never made, if you have gone through life so far without a king, without a high priest, without a savior, then this is an opportunity right now for you to make that decision. I want you... So oftentimes in Scripture, Jesus asks people to do things even though he already knows what it is they need. He sees the man with the withered hand and he says, stretch out your hand. Jesus could have healed that hand if, even if he hadn't stretched it out. It didn't. That wasn't really important, except it required an act of faith on the part of the man. And we see that so often. He'll ask someone, someone obviously is blind and can't see, what is it that you want? The act of faith is what says, I want to see, I want my sight back. And so if you've never made that decision and you want to, or let's just say if you made it a long time ago and it's, it's grown, your relationship with Jesus has grown cold. And it's not what you know it ought to be. Then take a step of faith. Come down here to the front as we close in worship. And let's fix that right here and right now. So that nobody leaves here without the assurance that Jesus is their king. Amen? Amen. So, Lord God, I just give you thanks right now. Father, that... Uh, you are so good. You are so good. And, Father, we, we just want right now, we don't want anybody to leave here without that assurance there isn't a shadow of doubt in their mind that they will be with you in heaven when their time on earth is over. But not just that, that they have that access to you for living now. Because it's not simply about salvation at the end. It's about having the best life you can have now. Because Jesus is Father, I just I pray a blessing on all of these that are gathered here today. I give you thanks and praise for them, for their hearts, for their love of you. all of
Father and the Son and the